0: Well, the, the, the beginnings of sermons are always the most awkward to uh, uh, to do twice, but I'll say this, making a connection to the text of the psalm, that um, we, Mandy and I, Mandy was at the first service with kids, and uh, we have genuinely found a home at uh, New City here, and so thank you for the warm hospitality you all have shown to us, and, and um, we've uh, been just... Enjoying the time, this season of, of life with uh, with you all. Psalm eighty four is a very familiar psalm to many people. It's one of the most famous. If you've never uh, studied it or read, or you don't read it frequently, or even memorized it, I I, I would commend it to you as uh, one of the first psalms to to memorize. In its familiarity, let's let's read this psalm. Will you listen as I read? To the choir master, according to the Getith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and a swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. You pray with me. O Lord, may our heart and soul and our flesh cry out with praise to you today. Will you lead us in paths of righteousness? Will you lead us along this psalm's journey? to worship You, be refreshed, restored by You. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One pastor friend of mine uh, noted, I think he did an informal survey of a number of churches on how frequently the Psalms are preached, and he found that in proportion to the rest of Scripture, particularly, it's a very small number, especially when you consider how familiar most of us are with the Psalms, how often we use them in our own personal devotions, how familiar with them uh, we are. Let me summarize some some, uh, reasons, possible reasons that may be. I think for many preachers, I know for me personally, the Psalms were intimidating to preach at the beginning. It wasn't a genre that we learned. and, And really, there's a different nature to preaching the Psalms. And I eventually just listened to a a mentor, or pastor friend, the same pastor friend, who was very uh, capable of preaching the psalms, and and followed his his lead. Another reason that the psalms oftentimes may be difficult to to preach and and to hear in a sermon is that they they get into the the, the dirt, the, the the grime, the rawness, the realness of life situations in ways that oftentimes we're not comfortable with. Heard a a, a great interview. I admitted to the first story, I'll admit to you. I'm a U2 fan. Grew up a U2 fan. I know if you're a millennial, you're not a U2 fan. But there's a great uh, interview where the lead singer of U2, Bono, uh, comes and and meets with the theologian, Bible translator, Eugene Peterson, because uh, Bono had read his paraphrase, translation of the uh, Scriptures, the message. It's kind of funny because uh, Peterson recalls that when somebody said, Bono wants to meet you, he asked the question, who's Bono? I know some of your fans because you've already seen it. You laughed before I said it. It's, it's, it's really a, a fascinating exchange where they end up talking about the Psalms And Peterson expresses this. He says, um, "Where am I? Where's my quote? Oh, it's in the Bulletin. I wrote this in the Bulletin. All right, I recorded it in the Bulletin." He says, "The Psalms showed me the, that imagination was a way to get inside the truth." This is certainly true. It's poetry. It's also another reason that sometimes the psalms are difficult to read for those of us who are theologians and like systems. But poetry and imagination is a way to get inside the truth. But this is Bono's response to that and uh, related. He says the psalms have this rawness. The psalmist has this brutal honesty about the explosive joy that he's feeling or the deep sorrow or confusion. And it's it's that that sets the Psalms apart from me. I often think, why is, why is church music not more like that? I think part of the reason church music isn't more like that is because we're uncomfortable expressing that. We feel like we're lacking in faith if we say, God, why are you so far away from me? Or even as Jesus quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Calvin, John Calvin also points out that the Psalms are, are, are like an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. In fact, some of the time the Psalms seem distant from us because they express all of human experience the frustrations, and we can't expre- experience the same type of uh, thing that those who experience physical persecution, for example, for their faith experience or the difficulties associated with certain life situations. But when we come to the Psalms and we realize that they've been written for all of humanity, in all times and places, we can come with a a greater appreciation of how God leads us in, in and through the Psalms. And that's the second thing that's kind of difficult. And one thing that would change the way I preach them is that the Psalms take us on journeys. And even though Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's referencing, like so many other places in Scripture that reference back to Psalms, He's referencing the journey that the Psalm takes people on. By one verse, He's referencing the whole thing and the comfort that God brings, the places that God leads people through the Psalms. And the turning point for me with the Scripture was, or with preaching Psalms was realizing that the best way almost always to preach a psalm is just to follow the journey that the psalm takes people on. Now, try to be creative or find topics or group certain things. Just, just follow the journey because the journey is one that oftentimes is familiar and it has purpose far greater purpose than I could ever find or present in some other format. Psalm eighty four is a psalm that takes people on that type of journey. It's a psalm that is of, of longing. Derek Kidner, a commentator on the psalms, great commentaries on all of the psalms. If you read it, you have to read through his stuff like five times to even just get a piece of what he's saying. It's so dense and rich. He says this, this, this psalm is just dripping with longing. It's characterized by this longing, this this longing to be in the courts of the Lord, to be in the place of the Lord, but, but, but even more than that, to be in the presence of the Lord Himself. So, the plan today is just to simply follow this through. It breaks down into roughly three parts, nice and convenient for a good Presbyterian three-point sermon. The three parts are, in verses 1 through 4, this expression of the desire to be in the temple of God, the place where God, uh, His presence is made known to the people of the Old Testament he ends this with a statement, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. And that that blessed is one of three times that you hear that beatitude expressed in the psalm. It gives us a good sense of the structure and the thought of the psalmist. And verse 5 starts the next section. It's one of those features of Hebrew poetry where they, they kind of group things in strange ways to, to our ear, but it's clear in the, the context of the Hebrew poetry where he goes, he goes, to a new place. He's, he begins with that blessed of the people who are in your temple, but then he realizes that so many of us aren't in the temple. We're on the journey. We're in the pilgrimage. We're going through that valley of Baca, that difficult, dark place. And so the next few verses talk about the journey through that place, and it's always still with God at our side, guiding us, strengthening us, Then when you get to verse 8 and verse 9, he turns yet again, and here again is a strange feature of Hebrew poetry. It's summarized at the very end, uh, verse 12, where he says, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And this whole section is characterized by a prayer of the psalmist. It says in verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer, depending on God for the provision, for the protection that he needs for the journey. Some people have even asked the question, does the psalmist actually get to the temple? And it's a fair answer to say, no, not in this life, that the psalmist is longing for something that's long lost. It's not even clear when this psalm was written. Perhaps David himself was a part of it when he was exiled by his own son and, and, uh, and trying to get back to the temple. Perhaps it was written shortly after that. It could even be an expression of the people of God when they're in exile in Babylon and longing to be back to the temple. And even if you're in exile in Babylon and never get to see the temple in this life, you can read this psalm and find yourself in it. Be refreshed by it, renewed by it. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. We're just going to walk through it a little bit at a time here, step by step in those three rough passages. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord, my heart in flesh sing for joy to the living God in language that expresses the whole being. The heart in ancient times, the heart represented not just the center of emotion like we tend to think of it, but the center of thought as well. So what the psalmist is saying, mind, soul. Heart, body, every bit of him is singing for joy. We had a line in one of the songs here this morning that was that was appropriate. Talked about the uh, the, the, the singing for joy, but it, it even expressed this this notion that that we shout for joy. In fact, that. The English translation struggles to capture the grandeur of the Psalms oftentimes, especially in the Psalms, the grandeur of the Hebrew uh, language, and and it says sing for joy, but really it probably could be expressed more accurately as as a a shouting, a crying out, a a, a barbaric yelp kind of uh, expression desiring the living God, not just wanting the benefits of being in the temple and being around all the people, but but shouting out to the living God, being in His presence, in relationship with Him. His soul is longing for that. But, But in this grandeur, this shouting out, this singing, this expression of thanks, the temple itself being this massive structure, impressive, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. you remember that Jesus, even with His disciples, they go out east of the city. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives. They're looking back. The disciples are admiring the temple and they're saying, "Can you? would you look at that? And Jesus redirects their gaze. He says, I need you to look at me. Tear down the temple. Three days, I'll build it back up. He even expounds on it further by, by saying, you know, you're going to be the temple when He makes us holy, all things connected, and we'll go, see it a little bit in the psalm, but, but you, I want you to see the grandeur of the temple, the grandeur of the expression of the first verse. And then notice where the psalmist takes us next, and that's, that's to take us to the very smallest of things, the sparrow, the swallow, Sometimes I hear these uh, echoes of this psalm in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He starts with the Beatitudes, blessed, and he references the sparrow. And then even later, we're going to hear about, uh, talk a little bit more about setting our hearts in heaven. And we ask the poignant question, where are your treasures? Where are you storing up treasure? What do you truly value? But he takes us down to talk about the sparrow, finding a home, And not just finding a home for herself, but the swallow, finding a place where she can raise her children. A home for everybody. And and not just that. It's not just up in the corner and the rafters of the building, which surely that was going on if this indeed is in the time of the temple and the birds would find their nooks and crannies up there. But it draws those sparrow and swallow. It draws them where? Right up to the altar of the Lord, the place where the the sacrifices were made, the place where the sinful human, humanity, would be reconciled, the the picture, the very picture of God and human together reconciled. The smallest of the animals, the smallest, really, of the people is what it's expressing. Even if if God considers the needs of the sparrow, Jesus says, you think he would forget about you. Roger said earlier, the time of the holidays reminds us of so many of our broken places in life, whether it's relationships with others or failings at our own goal, even the new year and setting goals. But this this sentence here, that even Sparrow finds a home, should be a comfort to every one of us who finds ourselves in time, places of brokenness during this season or any season in life. He summarizes his thought by saying, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. He turns his attention next with verse 5 to recognize that all of us in some way are still on this journey, this pilgrimage through the difficulties of life. We haven't reached that celestial city, to use the imis- uh, image that John, uh, John Bunyan gives us. We are just talking this week with a group of pastors about Pilgrim's Progress and some of the pros and cons of it, one of the most beautiful stories ever written. Uh, I think it still is the best-selling story written in English and second to the Bible, only in the best-selling book of all time. It's interesting to know that John Bunyan, writing of this story of a Christian allegorical tale of a man named Christian going on this journey of life, finding salvation in Christ, and ending up in the celestial city that is in the presence of God, in, uh, in God's uh, new temple, the, 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 the very presence, the new city But goes through all these difficulties, and Bunyan was a preacher who wasn't licensed He didn't have permission from the Church of England to preach. And because of that, and because he was preaching, and also out of probably some jealousy because he was a very effective preacher at turning people's hearts, he was in prison for 12 years. Had a family, wife and kids at home. He sat in prison. And while he was in prison longing for something better, he writes the story of Pilgrim's Progress. He's in a proverbial Valley of Baca. Baca, by the way, not sure where that is exactly. It probably references some type of tree, and it's a fairly hardy tree, a place where it'd be dry, and the context of the verse here points to that, that it can survive just getting occasional rain. But it's a difficult place, clearly, and meant to represent the difficult places that we face so often in life. And he starts this, he says, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Now, that word those, it's really easy to just kind of read over. But that word those, those whose strength is in you, unlocks the, the next few sentences here. Because over and over, he's talking about they As they go through the valley, they make it a place of springs. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. They are those who find their strength in God. concept of happiness is ubiquitous in our society today. The quest for happiness. You go to any bookstore and happiness and the quest for happiness is overwhelmingly the most common topic in the bookshelf today. How can we find happiness? The word blessed in Hebrew is a concept that closely ties with happiness. One interesting observation about it is typically it's a happiness that comes from outside of ourselves happiness that we can't fulfill ourselves. It stands in stark contrast with most of the self-help books out there that say you just need to be happy yourself, and then you can spread love and joy to other people. But the Bible tells us, presents something different. It says, blessed, happy, truly happy are the people who find their strength in God. Truly happy people are the ones who dwell in God's house and most of us experience this to some degree or another as we run from God or find try to find hiding places away from God in our own sinful rebellion or whatever it may be in our life and we experience that that apart from God happiness can never truly be found if you're in a place like that right now and, and running this psalm is inviting you into this journey that is set with the hope of dwelling in God's house. But the second portion is communicating that there is a blessing, a happiness, a strength, satisfaction that can happen even if we're on the journey and not quite there. It's interesting what happens here. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Not our own strength, but strength is in Christ. And then he says, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. If you're looking at the text in the Bible, you probably know that to Zion is kind of added there. Clearly from context, that highway is to Zion. But it's an interesting phrase here that he chooses, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. One question is, what's a highway? And another question is, what does it mean that a highway would be in a heart? If ever there was poetic language that was completely uh, foreign to any physical concept, to be that highway in the heart, unless you're maybe a cardiologist and you're talking about the veins and arteries and and the channels for for blood to flow in the heart or something to that effect, but it is it is two separate concepts that we would have a highway in our heart. What does it mean? Let's start with the heart, maybe. This is sort of a pre-incarnate Christ reference to what it is for us to be the temple of God, that Jesus comes and He lives in us. We become the dwelling place of God. And so, in one sense, our heart is a place where, where Jesus is constantly traveling, changing our, our hearts and our minds and equipping us. The heart, like I said before, is also considered in the ancient world the center of not just emotion but knowledge, It's very likely that this is referencing a a physical kind of depiction of a map of the journey to Jerusalem for the person from where they live to Jerusalem so that they can go and worship at the temple, whose mind is the pathway. They know the path. Now, those who know the path also know some of the challenges of the path, and it leads us into the next part that's also kind of curious as they go through the Valley of Baca they make it a place of springs, now, right after that it says the early rain also covers it with pools, and that clearly is referencing something that God does. He brings the early rain probably a, a fall rain uh, that that brings this kind of uh, nourishment to the uh, to the valley but who 's bringing the place of springs it 's the person it 's the The person on the journey, they go through the valley of Baca and they make it a place of springs. Probably the person who's been on the journey before knows the difficulties of the journey and knows to bring some extra water for the person who comes and isn't prepared for the dryness. It's the concept of Genesis 12 that's presented, why does God call Abram? He says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. Those who've traveled the path to Zion, know the path to God, continue to go through the difficult and arduous journeys of life, but they've come prepared now, knowing God in a way that they can be a blessing to others. And they go from strength to strength. And then there's very significant two words here. He says, each one appears before God in Zion. And a lot of times when we think about the temple presence and the crowds or even the new heavens and new earth and being with God and worship, it's a, a sea of people, and we wonder if we'll be drowned out. But but here it says two things. Each one, God calls each one you individually, but then he also gives this assurance. Each one appears. God doesn't lose people along the way. The journey doesn't take them out. God tr- delivers them to that destination. Each one reaches the destination, the picture of baptism, especially when we apply it to infants. Or even when we consider what it is that if you were baptized as, a, as an adult or someone who professed your own faith, how little we truly knew about God when we had baptism applied to us. When we were baptized by some other person, baptized by God, it's an image of how God's the one who is delivering us, taking us on this journey, providing for us, strengthening us. And when we realize that need, it draws us to this last portion of the psalm and the psalmist recognizing still, even though he's being able to be a blessing to others and and knows the path, but he's still utterly dependent on the God who gives him strength. Hear my prayer. Give ear. He says, behold our shield, look on the face of your anointed. The term anointed usually refers to the king in this context, especially in this time. The king, one of his responsibilities was maintaining the highways, the roads to Jerusalem. Concept of the highway itself was a safe passage to Travel. It was different than the roads. It was a place that the king himself often would travel, and so the low places would be raised up and the high places lowered down. I think one of the most comforting things I ever heard or learned along the way was that when Isaiah, the prophet, talks about the high places being lowered and the, 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 the low places being raised, it's not that God hates mountains, because I love mountains. It's not that God hates the valleys and the low places, but that a highway is built in a way that you can traverse safely. Highways were oftentimes built for kings to enter into cities or places. The king was responsible for providing this safe travel for other people. Still today, even today, one of the primary functions of government is to build and maintain safe roads. Even highway patrol and police officers are a part of that function of providing safe travel. And so the... The psalmist is asking God to bless the king so that the king can provide this safety for people. Of course, it's a picture of what Jesus does for us, and it keeps coming up. It says in verse 11, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The sun is the provision needed for the journey, the water, the food. The shield is the protection needed for the journey of life. Look on the face of your anointed, that the highways would be made safe, that the the places, the journey would be equipped, and that's exactly what Jesus does for His people, to draw us to Himself as He provides both provision and protection. Now, the last thing I'll say here is probably the thing that most of you know about this psalm, if nothing else, the songs, Better is a Day in Your Courts than a Thousand Elsewhere, verse 10. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in In the tents of wickedness. I said at the beginning, this is a psalm of longing, of repositioning our hearts to that, the resetting our hearts to to desire something else. And and we as a people, as God's people, are constantly tempted to find our satisfaction in the small things of life. We're in a season of Thanksgiving. We want to be grateful for the small things in life. But oftentimes, what happens when we find our satisfaction there, even if we're kind of successful with it, we lose vision for the grandeur. The grandeur that was depicted of the temple, of the ancient wonders of the world, the lovely dwelling place, like the disciples looking back. We need to be reminded that the true grandeur, the true glory is in being in the presence of God Himself. And He uses this vivid language that every one of us remembers. You can't go away from here today and forget this language. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be the doorkeeper standing all day, not even getting to go in and enjoy the fruits of things, than to dwell in the tents of wickedness, or as Eugene Peterson says, the palaces of sin, with all the food and drink and pleasures uh, that are associated with it. And if this psalm leads you in no other places, may it lead you in that longing to be in the presence of God Himself the desire for God Himself, because that's what Jesus has done for us in reconciling us to Himself. It says the Lord bestows favor and honor. Derek Kidner, that commentator, I think I mentioned him earlier. Sometimes you forget what you mentioned first service, second service. Favor, Derek Kidner says, these words really are more accurately expressed in grace as grace, and glory. The Lord gives grace and glory. The grace that we need to hear, this concept of Hebrew said everlasting, steadfast love of the Lord. We're going to sing about that in a little bit. Steadfast love of the Lord, it never changes. He extends His grace to His people, but also He promises us this glory that is not overshadowing anybody else, but that God shares his glory with us. Kidner says, the concept of grace, as the people would have understood it at this point in history, is roughly this, the smile of God when you're going through the difficult places of life, when you wonder if God has abandoned you or will continue to carry you through the difficulty. Or maybe you've brought it on yourself, wrestling, struggling with some sin. Know that in the grace of Jesus, that God looks on you and He smiles, not a smirk, but a kind smile of God saying, You are my beloved child. You're the one I've called to be my own. And I promise not only to give you my grace, but to bring you into a shared glory with Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, may we look on your face with joy and delight and see your smile on us. Will you set our longing for you? May our whole heart and flesh, our whole being, cry out to you, the living God, songs of praise, songs of joy. As we journey through this life, will you remind us that you You will do all of these things. Your word is good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.